in 2 Peter 3, we've been looking at this subject of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming day of judgment that accompanies his return. And we've approached it using four questions. Uh, The first, how can we be sure it will come this day of the Lord? And Peter's answer to us was very plain. Look to the past. He's judged the world before. He's going to do it again. The second was, why has it not happened yet? Answer, God is patient with us, giving us time to turn. The third question was, what will happen when Jesus returns? Answer, well, he'll bring about a day of blistering destruction for some and blissful salvation for others. Uh, Whether you dread that day or look forward to that day really depends on what you believe about Jesus Christ. Now, the fourth question that we're looking at as we finish off this series tonight is not at first what you might expect. It wasn't at first what I might have expected. I mean, having just told us about the, the new heaven and the new earth, this home of righteousness that will be our dwelling um, after the return of Christ, um, We might expect Peter to expand a little bit on what it will be like to dangle the carrot a little bit more and spur us on in our godliness in that regard. But Peter does not give us any more detail about the future. Instead, he tells us how we should live in the present. He's not interested in speculation. He's interested in application. What difference does this make that Jesus is coming back? in judgment for some, and salvation for others. And that's what we're looking at tonight. How should we live in view of his coming? So let's read from verses 14 to 18 from 2 Peter 3. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. So, in answer to the question, how should we live in view of his coming, I think we have four answers in here. One, grow to be more like Jesus. Two, Go and tell others about Jesus. Three, guard against error that denies Jesus. And four, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Number one, grow to be more like Jesus. Look with me again at verse 14. See where we get this from. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So what Peter says here, and what he means when he says be spotless and blameless and at peace with him, is that those who are true believers, those who are looking forward to the return of Jesus, strive for holiness. They strive to become holy 
just as Jesus himself is holy. Now, Peter has spent, well, I suppose you could say Peter's used up a fair bit of his word count denouncing the ungodly in chapter 2. And look at verse two, uh, chapter 2 and verse 13 in particular. What does Peter call these false teachers? What does he call these ungodly people who deny the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? He calls them blots and blemishes. In other words, they are the polar opposites of what Peter is calling for in those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are people who revel in their pleasures. They never stop sinning. They're not making every effort to add to their faith goodness and to knowledge, self-control, and so on. No, no, no. They're not doing that at all. And Peter highlights this in order to show that we are not to be like them. Actually, rather, we are to be like Jesus, who in Peter's first letter and in chapter 1 of verse 19 is described as the lamb without blemish or defect, spotless, blameless. So Peter's trying to show us without question. Be like Jesus, who is holy, without spot, without blemish. Don't be like the false teachers, these lawless people who have no regard for God's word and indeed distort it to their own destruction. Instead, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. What does this look like? Well, it looks like the godly character, really, that's described in chapter 1. Peter is, at the end of this book, essentially going full circle. We're called in chapter 1 to be Christ-like in our character, Christ-like in our resolve, Christ-like in our relationships. And Peter says that those who look forward to the return of Jesus and a rich welcome into his eternal kingdom would rather be like him than the world. What would you rather be like? Him or the world? Now think back over the last few days. What do we look like? More him or the world? We praise God that our justification rests not on our efforts. Being made right with God does not rest on us and our good works. No, we are justified by grace. It is a free gift from him. And yet we would be wrong to remove from the equation the importance and the necessity of striving to become more like Jesus. But again, to the praise of God's glorious grace, that work and that effort is not ours necessarily. It is grace-driven, motivated by grace, spirit-empowered, even as we saw in chapter 1. So even as we think, are we growing to be more like Jesus? It's an important question for us. Maybe you're the kind of person who thinks that, actually, you know, as I look back over the last few weeks, the last months, the last year, I think I've maybe plateaued, maybe reached a cruising altitude, and not really having any kind of desire or intent to go any higher. I think for some of us, we may need to think through how problematic that is. Sometimes I think we can be too content with spiritual immorality and immaturity in our lives. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, said this. He said, I think that many of us, when Christ has enabled us to overcome one or two sins that were an obvious nuisance, 
We're inclined to feel, though we do not use these exact words, that we're now, in a sense, good enough. He has done all he wanted to do in us and should be obliged if God would now leave us alone. And we say, oh, I never expected to be a saint. I only wanted to be a decent, ordinary chap. Well, we imagine then we may say this, that we are being humble in doing so. We may be content to remain what we call ordinary people, but God is determined to carry out quite a different plan. He's not stopped remaking and remodeling us, brothers and sisters. He never will be until the day that we drop dead or the day that Christ returns. Peter encourages us then to grow, to target unwelcome sins, behaviors, mindsets, and put them to death to love the fruit of the Spirit, to cultivate the kind of application of the gospel to our hearts that brings about effectiveness in this life as we looked at in chapter one and a rich entrance into the next. That's what we need to pursue, but not with any kind of half-hearted pursuit. No, we have to make every effort. Peter's already used this same phrase in chapter 1 and verse 5, as you look back with me, for this reason, in other words, since God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness and given us these precious promises, he says, verse 5, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and so on. In other words, those who have divine power at their disposal roll up their sleeves and put that power to work. They put that power to work. Recognizing, of course, that God is not looking for perfection. Only Jesus is perfect. But he is looking for progress. And the question is, are we growing? Well, that's the first thing. Growing to be more like Jesus. The second thing, go and tell others about Jesus. Look with me at verse 15. Peter says, Bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. And here's what Peter's saying. Those who are looking forward to the return of Jesus go about making disciples, telling other people about Jesus and sharing the gospel. They make disciple-making a priority because that's one of the purposes behind Christ's delay. This is, in a sense, the age of the church, and the age of the church is the age of mission. In Acts chapter 2, you find an account of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit filled the church, he gave them power to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. And these guys were not slow in going about it. Read any of the witnessing accounts in Acts for yourself, whether from Peter or from Paul, and you'll be left in no doubt. There is this clear correlation between a strong belief in the imminence of Christ's return and a desperation in light of that to sweep as many people into the kingdom as possible. Sweep being the word that's used by me to describe evangelism. You can't just shove people in, clearly. No, we use words. We share the gospel that we have been given. Now, in the last, and, and that's what we've got to do. We've got to do it in a sense, in light of the urgency of the needs. The plight of the lost is a serious, serious thing. 
And given that we do not know when Christ is coming back, we must be at this work of evangelism constantly. We must make it a priority, brothers and sisters. There's no question. And I mean that in a, uh, a collective sense as a church family. It has to be. But also individually, brothers and sisters, as we're scattered throughout this city and in the different places we reside, we must make this a priority of sharing the gospel with others. We must warn people of what is coming. Jesus Christ has so filled his church with the Spirit and so filled our mouths with the news that people need to repent of their sins and trust in Christ before it's too late, we would be sinning to keep it to ourselves. We are to make disciple-making a priority then because we, we know what awaits the lost when the end comes. That dreadful day of the Lord will come with that unmissable force and the unavoidable consequences. There's no change in your mind at that point. That's why we must tell people that there is a God who exists. Tell people that they are more sinful than they ever realized. And tell people that their sin is an offense against God. Then we must tell people that they are more loved than they ever dared imagine and point to the fact that Jesus came into this world sent by the Father in love to rescue us from our sin and to pay the price for that sin himself on the cross where he died in our place as our substitute. We should tell them that he rose again, proving that that sacrifice on the cross was accepted by God. And that truly people who turn from their sin in sorrow over it and turn to Christ in faith will have their sins forgiven and new life in him. That is by definition eternal. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, that is in essence what the gospel is, the good news of Christianity is in a nutshell. Would you say that that's what you believe? Would you say that you've come to a point where you've acknowledged that God exists and that you've sinned and that you need a savior and that Jesus is that savior? Have you turned from sin and turned in faith believing that his blood is what cleanses you from sin? If not, I would love two minutes of your time at the end of the service to talk to you about it or else talk to the person that brought you tonight. Uh, This is the most important thing that you could ever consider in your life. Given what Christianity teaches is coming at the end. Please do come and talk. Ask questions about it. Or trust in Christ and thank him for his amazing love. Brothers and sisters, we must be those who go and make disciples. We must be those who, who put aside our petty concerns as to what people might think about us as we share the gospel and instead do all that we can to let no one go to hell unwarned. Spurgeon said, if hell must be filled, let no one go unwarned. If sinners will in the end be damned, let them perish with our arms around their knees, pleading with them to stop pleading with them to turn. It's that important. So brothers and sisters, let's make sure that evangelism is a priority for us. Even in church life, uh, 
we must beware the mindset where we think that evangelism must be done by a few gifted people running well-designed courses. There are gifted people running those. There are well-designed courses. But this is a work that is far too important. It needs every single one of us to be at it, whether we feel excited and thrilled about it or utterly like we're about to die inside at the prospect of it. It doesn't matter whether we feel anxious about it or not, in a sense. And I hope you don't think I'm being insensitive, though I fear I might be a little bit. It's that important. People's eternal destiny depends on this. And I can think of people in my own life, and you can think of people in your own life who desperately need to hear this. No, we must all be about this, sharing the gospel. So the first thing that Peter says, how should we live in light of Christ's return? Well, one, grow to be more like Jesus. Two, go and tell others about Jesus. The third thing, guard against error that denies Jesus. Look with me, verse 17. Peter says, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. Now, Peter talks about this secure position. He's talked about it before in chapter 1, where he talks about, um, in verses 10 and 11, making every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is all off the back of those who will take the divine power that God has made available to them and put it into practice, making every effort to roll up their sleeves, put this power to work, so that they're seeing growth in their life, even in the tiny marginal gains. They're seeing effectiveness in their lives. They're seeing fruit from that. Those are the kind of people who are seeing those things who can have this confidence, assurance. This is the secure position that he's talking about here. And people who enjoy that secure position know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, they become all the more amazed at God's grace in doing so. But there is a warning here that you might be carried away from this secure position. That's a pretty scary image in a sense. It, it, it evokes the image of someone just kind of picking you up and legging it with you over, your, over their shoulder. It, it actually reminds me of a scene from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Um, You'll not find that movie in the horror genre on Netflix, but that's exactly where I would put it because I remember the child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Does anyone else remember the child catcher? Why did they allow that? I mean, that should have been like a 15. Goodness. Anyway, there's this scene, and the scene portrays these kids and their descent into captivity. You know, their hearts are carried off first when they hear the music and the offer of lollipops. I can still hear lollipops. I can still... Oh, it's, I'm giving me a sweat just thinking about it. <laughs> but then they themselves are, are, you know, their hearts are carried away at first. They're like, oh, I desire a lollipop. And then all of a sudden, they themselves are carried away. Their feet take them out to the street. And something that just looks plausible to them, that, that, that cart that just looked so inviting, as soon as they step into it, it falls apart. And all that's left are the bars and the captivity, the slavery, if you like, to sin. That's what I think of when I see it anyway. Um, now, that, <laughs> that's, I hope that illustration made sense. If not, that was just a complete waste of 30 seconds. Anyway, um, 
I say this to help us see that this is why we as Christians need to be on our guard. We can be so easily led astray by the desire and the enticement of sin that looks pretty. It seems enticing. It promises life and enjoyment, but ultimately will just deliver death and enslavement to it. And Peter warns that if we are not careful to guard against the error of the lawless, we can fall from this secure position. Now, it's not saying you can lose your faith. That's not what's in the subject here. It's just saying that when you enjoy that security and assurance whenever you're living like what's described in chapter 1, but if you let yourself be carried away through the unguardedness, actually, you'll find yourself destabilized. You'll find yourself lacking assurance. And Christians who lack assurance can find themselves really struggling to grow in grace and go and make disciples and guard against error. It's important. So brothers and sisters, we, in order to guard against error and the error of lawlessness, so people who have no regard for the command and instruction of the Bible, must recognize false teachers. We must recognize them. And Peter has actually given us quite a photo fit in chapter 2, hasn't he? He's given us a photo fit to describe these false teachers and generally what they're like by their example and their conduct and by their teaching and what comes out of their mouth in order to help us, you know, frame in our minds that photo fit so that whenever we hear it or see it, we recognize it. So in chapter 1 and verse 16, he's already explained that these guys make up myths, cleverly invented stories. Chapter 2, verse 12, they blaspheme in matters they don't understand. 2.18, mouth and empty boastful words. And then look at how they live. They're bold and arrogant. 2.10, they enjoy the mud, actually, as it says at the end of chapter 2, that the Bible says we should wash away. They happily munch on the vomit that any true believer's stomach has ejected, spiritually speaking. So number one, grow to be more like Jesus. Number two, go and tell others about Jesus. Number three, guard against error that denies Jesus. And the final thing, well, it's really the antidote to the deception and the destruction that I've just described in the third point. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. It's a great summary of the whole book, actually. Look with me at verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Well, those who are looking forward to the return of Jesus are, as Peter suggests here, increasingly amazed at God's favor and increasingly fill their minds with God's truth, knowing that both serve each other they realize that there's a direct correlation between the two. God's grace is, if you like, the the kinetic energy of the Christian faith. He's the one who drives everything. He's the means by which this grace is poured out into our lives through (coughs) different ways, but three in particular that are highlighted for us in a a book by a guy called David Mathis um, called Habits of Grace. Three means of grace by which we We enjoy God's grace as it's poured out on us in plentiful supply. We have that grace poured out into our lives through hearing God's voice, having his ear, and belonging to his body. Hearing his voice as he speaks in his word. And we listen to it as it's preached on a Sunday. We listen to it as we read it 
on our own. We listen to it as we read it in our small groups, whether it's at Yak or Growth Group or Time Out or wherever. We hear his voice. We are, in a sense, filled up by it. As we grow in our understanding of who God is, we grow in our amazement at his grace that this God who is so entirely other, so perfectly holy, so beautiful in his majesty, so abundantly loving towards us and undeservedly so for us, that we just become freshly, daily, amazed. Do you ever have times like that when you read the Bible? When you hear God's word preached? When you study it in your small group? And the truth of God's word just becomes more alive to you than you've seen it before? Especially when it speaks particularly into a situation where you think, oh man, I'm just feeling so, for example guilty and feeling so shamed by the sin in my life. I feel like I'm lacking energy because I, you know, I just feel like I'm not doing a very good job. And then you read James 4 verse 6 and you read, but he gives more grace. And you think, praise God. Or you read, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you think, praise God. That is amazing. Because actually by my own take, I could be quite easily condemned day after day after day after day, but what he gives us is grace and love day after day after day. Are you not amazed at this? I am utterly amazed that God could love someone like me, save someone like me. Are you not? When we turn to God's word, we're freshly amazed. And having heard God's voice, we recognize the joy and the privilege of having his ear. We talk to him about it. We pray to him. We say, you are utterly amazing. For all that you are and all that you have done that you and your might and your majesty would condescend to me. You are glorious. You sent your son, as we were thinking about this morning, he went to a cross. He suffered for us. You are glorious and we thank you and we praise you. Or we ask him for things. Almighty God, Lord and Father of all the universe, the one for whom nothing is impossible, the one who holds all power, change this in me. Bring this person to faith. Shake the government in that nation to bring about peace. Let all the world see your glory. Are you praying, brothers and sisters? Is it a priority for us? 
I fear if we don't do the first thing and hear God's word, we'll never pray. The third thing belonged to his body. We speak of him together. We come alongside one another and we express our love. I love you. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> I love that you found that funny. <laughs> like, it's, I'm serious. You might say, I don't know you. Well, I don't know you, all of you, the same way. But we in this church family ought to love one another deeply from the heart, Peter says in 1 Peter. And we express that in many and various ways with the relationships that we've got in our small groups, with the connections that we build up. We love you, by the way, if you're visiting when you come in the door and we offer you a welcome, a hand to shake, a smile on the face, um, interested questions that I hope don't sound too overbearing sometimes. We express our love for one another by strengthening one another and stabilizing one another. We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We build one another up. That's what we exist to do. That's what church families are all about. And we grow. Luther says, this life therefore is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. And this is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Yes. That's what he is doing in us. Brothers and sisters, this is more than just going through the motions then. This is realizing essentially that we are in relationship with our God and with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his spirit. To the extent that we exercise it in that way, we, we turn to him first in our every need. We talk to him first about every difficulty. We consult him in every step. We spread before him all our sorrows, thank him for all our joys, and do all as, as if in his sight, and to go through every day leaning on and looking to him so that the very last sentence might be true. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's bow our heads.